Good morning, Austin Oaks Church. My name is James Lauderdale. Uh, it's been really good to see a lot of old faces and a lot of new faces, meet a lot of new faces and people. Um, just so you know, um, my wife, Julie, is with me here. We are back in the United States. Uh, we've been back, a, tomorrow will be a week, and then we fly back to Budapest on May 11th. We served in our serving with Reach Global. It's the mission agency of the Evangelical Free Church of America. And Austin Oaks serves as our home sending church. Uh, we were actually on staff 94 and 95, a long time ago, before we moved to Ukraine. We were 15 years in Ukraine. Um, so as you may assume, we've had a lot going on. Uh, we moved from Ukraine in 2009, and we're actually back here in Austin from 2009 to 2010. So for just about a year, we were back in Austin. And then uh, at the end of 2010, we moved to Budapest, Hungary, and we've been in Budapest since then. So 12 years, in our 12th year in Budapest, um, and have been very, very busy over the last 67 days. Uh, with the war going on in Ukraine. Uh, you know, a lot of Ukrainians that we know, they don't know if it's Tuesday or Thursday or Friday or the 12th or the 18th. They just refer to it as day 67. And I think today is 67 since the war started February 24th. Um, would also like to uh, just say a huge thank you to BJ and the staff here for giving me the opportunity uh, to preach this morning. Um, I do want to acknowledge uh, I'm very grateful uh, to Chad McCartney that he got the passage on Ananias and Sapphira last week and that I don't have to do that this week. But um, did a really, really good job with that and I appreciate it. I did watch that from Budapest last week, last Sunday. Um, as we get into our text this morning, uh, just a few things about the book of Acts. One is that the, the literary genre of Acts is that of history. Uh, it's the history of the beginnings of the church. And something Chad said last week I wholeheartedly agree with, and I want to emphasize again today that he said, the way he said it was that it's informative but not necessarily normative. And another way I would say it is it's descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. That is, it's, it describes the beginnings of the church, but it doesn't necessarily prescribe that that's how every church forever has to do it. Um, but there are some things that I, w I would say this, that when you say the word informative versus normative, the book of Acts is much more than just a simple FYI just so you know this is how it was happening and now you can forget it. It's still in the word, it's still inspired, it's still God's word. And as we look at it today, I do hope that we can come away with a greater appreciation for the early church and for what they went through. And I think we should also, we should keep in mind the, the fact that we're sitting here today in this building doing what we're doing as a re direct result of the disciples and their faithfulness in the text we're going to look at today. 
You think we're 2,000, 2,200 years removed from this. They were maybe a month removed. I mean, this was it. This was the start of the church. They were a month removed, maybe six weeks, maybe three. I don't know if we know exactly how many from the crucifixion of Jesus. So just keep that in mind as we look through this. Um, You know, in any... I know this happened with me when I was in high school. I had that talk with my dad about, you know, my future. What are you going to do? I've had that talk with my kids. What's your future? What are you going to do? You know, get on your horse. It's time to start adulting and thinking about the future. Um, kind of that conventional wisdom, you know, of staying the course. But, you know, to stay the course, we're going to see in this passage that the disciples stayed the course. But what's the, the bottom line, the, the essential element that you need in order to stay the course? You need to know what the course is that you're trying to stay, right? So I think we're going to see that here. And when we talk about that, I mean, the, the disciples knew what the course was. They knew what it was and they stayed on it. And the question for us then is what, what is the course that we see in this? Before we take a look at, at Acts 5, and it's our text today, our, our section of scripture is Acts 5, 12 to 42, 30 verses. But we're not going to look at every single one in detail. But before we do that, I want to look at four, three verses uh, in the preceding chapter and just I'm going to read these there's Acts 4.13 4.29 and 4.31 and there's a common word see if you see it now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus verse 29 uh and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Boldness is the characteristic which defines these early disciples. They were bold because they had been changed by their time with Jesus. They were bold because they had been filled with the Spirit. And they were bold because they truly, deeply believed what they were talking about. As we look at our section of Scripture, I just, I, I, in preparation for the sermon, I begin to notice, I think, I mean, maybe it's just something I've seen. I don't know where I got this. It's just like, something I saw in the, in the scripture, it's kind of like a roller coaster. There's times at the beginning, they, I mean, they're really high, it's really great, then it's low, and then it's high again, and then it's low again, and then there's kind of a period where it's high and low. But let's read through this real quick. Verse 12 to 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. 
And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns and around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. This was a high period. Everything was going right. They were obedient. They were doing what they were called to do, and people were being changed by it. There was many signs and many wonders. Now, just looking at verse 13, none of the rest dared to join them. After last week's sermon that Chad preached and understanding the story behind Ananias and Sapphira, I can see why. I can see why no one wanted to join them. There was a fear that infused the people to an extent. But even though people didn't want to join them, verse 13, but they were held in high esteem by the people. So this is a period, right, this, this one, it was, it was high. They're up there. It's going great. But then, verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now it's a low. They've gone back down. They've, got a, they've been arrested. They've been put in prison. Verse 19 beginning in 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. Supernatural intervention into their situation. The angel opened the door. The angel got them out of prison without them doing anything. It starts a high or going back up they're able to preach again. They're able to do what they're called to do. Continuing on in 21, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all of the senate, the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. The whole time they're thinking they're still in prison. They didn't know they were out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them. And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. This was both a high and a low, I think. They were out of prison, but now the religious leaders have found out about it again and they they found them and they found them preaching in the temple and their religious leaders were greatly perplexed. Verse 26 to 28, then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in the name of, in the name Yet here you have filled with Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So here we're kind of at a low again. Um, they're brought before the council and scolded. They're being told again um, not to preach and not to do what they have been called to do. 
And notice again, the religious leaders were afraid of being stoned because of the people, because of the people. Remember back in verse 13 that the people held them in high esteem. So there's this tense balance going on between, um, I think, between the religious leaders' perspectives and their attitudes, but also wanting to please the crowd and not or not make the crowd mad. Then we get to a high point again in verse 29. We're going back up. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you were killing by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as author and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given those, to, those who obey him. So here we're, now we're kind of at a high. Peter takes, takes the opportunity given to him to testify to even if it's, um, even if it's in a kind of a tense situation, it's kind of a situation that is not, um, he has to be really careful. He has to be really diplomatic, which kind of leads you to wonder, you know, it's like, especially verse 30, the God of our fathers, Jesus raised, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Like, I, Peter, I'm not so sure I would have said it quite like that, that you accused, just accused them, which was true. But remember, they had just said in verse 29 or 28 that you intend to bring this man's blood on us. They gave Peter the opening to acknowledge that and to affirm that because they had Jesus' blood on their hands. So then we're in 33, there's another low. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The religious leaders were enraged and wanted to kill them. Look back real quickly, verse 17. They were arrested because the religious leaders were jealous Verse 24, the religious leaders were greatly perplexed. 26, the religious leaders were afraid of being stoned. The re- verse 33, the religious leaders were enraged. They were jealous. They were perplexed. They were afraid. And they were enraged. I think if I were one of the disciples, I would have said, well, we're doing something right. If that's the reaction that we're getting, we're doing something right. We get to then the next section, the Gamaliel's Council. And this is one of the most, I think is a really, really interesting, from a few points of view, portion of scripture. Here we have Gamaliel, who is not a believer. He's a Jewish leader. He does not believe in Jesus. He was party to all of the, all the previous lows that we've seen so far in our text. He was in those discussions. He was in the times when they were telling the disciples not to speak the name. He was in the discussions that were, he was enraged. He was in the discussions. He was one of the leaders that was afraid. He was one of the leaders that was perplexed. But here we have Gamaliel and his speech, his counsel to the religious leaders is part of scripture. And I think that's just really cool that that Luke would, was inspired 
by the Holy Spirit to record Gamaliel's counsel. Gamaliel's counsel essentially, beginning in verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all of the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while, put the disciples outside. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, I think there's a lot in here in Gamaliel's counsel, even though it was not, not meant to be prophetic or telling about the future of the church, that was very accurate. It was very accurate. And one of the things that I think that Gamaliel really underscores and he affirms, even though I don't think he knows he's doing this, is that God is in this. If God is in it, you will not be able to oppose it. And I think we can look back 2,000 years and we could say, yes, God was in this because we're still meeting today and the church is still active today. Then the last section of our, our scripture after Gamaliel's counsel is uh, when the apostles had called, when they had called the apostles after, after the Gamaliel's council, they brought the disciples back in, the the council took Gamaliel's advice. They brought the disciples back in. And when they, he called the apostles in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and he let them go. Okay, that's a low. I mean, I don't like getting beaten. I can't even remember if I've ever been really beaten, but I, don't, I wouldn't like it, I don't think. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Jesus. They rejoiced that they counted themselves worthy to suffer because of his name. That is a high. That is what it was all about for them. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now I just want to share a few observations that I have made about this text this morning and about what we've, we've just looked at. One, the disciples endured persecution and remained faithful. And they remained faithful, I see, to three things. They remained faithful to the Lord. They remained faithful to his charge, his calling, where in verse 29, Peter says, we must obey God. The second thing they remained faithful to, to the message, it did not change. Looking at verse 30 and 32, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses 
to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. They remained faithful to the message. It did not change. And they remained faithful, lastly, to the communication of the message. Verse 42 that we just read, they kept every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease preaching and teaching that the Christ is Jesus. So they remained faithful. Another thing, the, the second thing, the disciples did not seek to change the persecution. But they sought, I think, to endure the persecution and to be thus changed by the persecution. Let's be honest, in 2022, if we face any sort of persecution, what's our reaction? I know my reaction is avoid because I like safety and comfort. I don't want to suffer. I don't. Do we file a lawsuit? Do we write our senator or a congressman getting a law changed? Or do we consider how God might be using persecution in our lives? Do we do we do all we can to keep it from happening? I was doing a little thinking about this, and um, it's interesting being in uh, being in Budapest, and in our church in Budapest. It's an English-speaking international church, and I think I, I wouldn't venture a guess. There was about about four years ago, a guy preached a sermon, and he had everybody stand up in the in the congregation whose native language, native tongue, was not English. And the sermon was on Psalm 150. And if you recall, the end of Psalm 150 says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And he just had a real simple task and he wanted everybody to say in their native language, in their mother tongue, praise the Lord. And I think that the final count was 44. 44 different languages in which somebody stood up and said, praise the Lord in their language. So very, very international community, very diverse. Um, but let me ask you this, this kind of a tangent. I'm going to come back to that, to the church in Budapest. What country do you think, and you don't have to answer it. I just want you to, this is not an out loud answer. What country comes to your mind as being a country that is most, it's probably highest on the list of the country that persecutes the church? If you said Iran, you would be right. If you thought Iran, you would be right. In the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians than in the previous 13 centuries. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians in Iran. Today, most estimates, and this is taken from Operation World. Operation World is one of the leading resources on the global church. Today, there's an estimated one million believers in Iran. The second fastest growing, Iran is the fastest growing per capita church in the world. The second fastest growing church in the world per capita is Afghanistan. 
And a lot of the reason the church in Afghanistan is growing is because Iranian believers are sharing the gospel with Afghanis. So it doesn't necessarily follow that if the church is being persecuted that the, the church will not grow. I would say that where there is persecution, that's where the church grows the fastest. The top 20 countries where the church is growing the fastest, 19 of them are in either in Asia, the Middle East, or in Africa. So the disciples, I think the disciples that we read, we read about in Acts and the disciples that are in Afghanistan and Iran, they know what to do with persecution and they don't try to change it, but they're changed by it and they seek what God is doing in their midst, in the midst of persecution. The third thing, the disciples were convinced that the preaching and the communication of the gospel was more important than their comfort and safety, what we've just been talking about. They didn't necessarily seek respect. They didn't seek a better life or justice or to be treated fairly. They only sought to be faithful to God, faithful to the message of the gospel and faithful to what had been done in their lives by being changed. Now keep in mind, I mean, something I think that's extremely important to keep in mind right here is that these are the same disciples that just maybe weeks before did not understand the parables. They most often didn't get it with respect to the full ramifications of Jesus' ministry. They fell asleep while Jesus was praying in the garden. When he was rested in the garden, they ran away. And then as we know, Peter, the one, our verse, upon you I will build my church, denied even knowing Jesus. But something changed. And as we talked about a little bit earlier, they were changed because of the Holy Spirit, because they were changed by their time with Jesus. And now they knew what they were living for. They had the reason to live. So going back to that, how do we stay the course? How is it that we, um, you know, thinking about the disciples through this passage in Acts, thinking about, you know, the ups and downs they had, how did they stay the course? I've got three things that I just want to share with you that that I personally have as my, here's how I stay the course. The first one is obedience is key. Verse 29 and verse 32, Peter answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. Verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Obedience is key. And you know, something interesting about obedience is you know when you're not obedient, right? You don't need a whole lot of people pointing it out to you. I know when I'm, I'm disobedient. The key is admitting it to myself when I'm not obedient and just acknowledging it, knowing when I am not doing what I know I should be doing or doing what I know I shouldn't be doing. I'm going to read 29 to 32 again. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God 
rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at the right at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to those things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. It's all about God. Four times in four passages, God is mentioned. Everything revolves around God and what his plan is, not about what the disciples' plan is. And this is obedience that's in all areas of life, not just one. You just remember last week about what Chad preached about Ananias and Sapphira. Very clearly, that, was, that impacted their entire life. The second thing I would like to share is a kind of a staying on course. Is just a, I just say keep it simple. I came across a verse. Um, oh gosh, this is probably, and I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. You, you know you've read the Bible a lot. You've read, maybe read particular parts of the Bible a lot more than other parts. But you know you've read a passage before or a book or a chapter but you're reading it and you go, wait, who put that verse in the Bible? You know, it, was just, it hits you in a way that you never have been hit by it before. This happened to me with 2 Corinthians 11.3 about six years ago. And it says, um, where Paul writes and he says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts your minds would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. One thing that Paul is saying here very clearly is that devotion to Christ is two things, right? It's simple and it's pure. Now, I was talking about... This is about, that was six years ago that I read that first, and that ever since then, I've, I've, it keeps coming up in my thinking. About four years ago, I was helping a friend, a, another missionary in Budapest, was, his family was moving back to the States, and I offered to help him clean their house before they moved, and we were just talking. He was preaching the sermon the upcoming, that upcoming Sunday at our church in Budapest, and so we were talking about his sermon, and he said, yes, yeah, so I'm going to preach out of Matthew about the, where Jesus says to the disciples, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, and we were, talked about that verse. We kept talking about it, and you know, what's your application going to be, and, and uh, the more we talked about it, we kind of we kind of came to this point where we both almost, uh, this is how I remember it, Bill doesn't remember it this way, but I remember it, that we both came to this point right at about the same time where we said, and when we're talking about the Christian life, we said, it's not easy, but it's not complicated. Christian life is not easy, but the reason that it's not easy is not because it's super complex. It's just like a whole list of things that you can never imagine being able to complete. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. The reason it's not easy is because of me, because I'm sinful, because I'm selfish, because I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it. But if I'm living in that, then I'm not like the disciples in Acts 5. I'm not keeping it simple. 
So keeping it simple means going back to what is the basics? What, what is the really, what do I really need to do? And in a lot of ways, that's really changed my, my attitude toward, in a lot of ways, toward ministry. I mean, I spend a lot more time with people now than I did before. I value conversation. I value what people are thinking, not about me, but about what they're processing, what they're thinking. And I just love, it has changed the way I approach people in so many ways. The third thing, obedience is key, keep it simple. And then I'm going to switch to another book of the Bible um, in Hebrews. Three times in Hebrews, and I'm, I'm actually preaching a passage in Hebrews at our church in Budapest in about three weeks. But Hebrews 4, I'm going to read this passage. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive help and mercy, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's 4.14 where Paul, not Paul, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who the author is, let us hold fast our confession. In chapter 3, verse 6, 3, 14, 6, 18, and 10, 23, there's the same idea of holding fast. What does it mean to hold fast to our confession? In many ways, it's like staying the course. If you want to hold fast to your confession, it'd probably be a good idea to know what you confess that you're trying to hold fast to. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus was born and the Word became flesh, that he was crucified, buried, and raised on the third day? Do you believe that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now? Do you believe that Jesus will return again to claim his own? Do you believe that you, as a believer, have eternal life? These are the things that you hold fast to. To stay the course to endure persecution, to really see the church grow. Obedience is key. Keep it simple and hold fast to your confession. You know, I told you a little bit about, I wanted to return to talking about Iran and the the church growth there. Since in the last, I don't know, it was about four, maybe four years ago, I had the opportunity to baptize two brothers biological brothers, um, also spiritual brothers, but biological brothers, both of them from Iran. And um, they had moved to Budapest to study. And that's what's really, one of the interesting things about Budapest is just so many international students. They started coming to our church. And I I met them and grabbed coffee with them a couple days later. And the more we talked, the more I knew, I mean, the more they talked and shared with me that they were believers are believers, but they'd never been baptized before. And they, uh, they said, you know, asked me if I would baptize them. And I said, well, of course I will. And so we continued meeting. 
It was about, uh, maybe about a year ago, another believer, another young man from Iran started coming to our church, and Ali is his name, and I have gotten to know Ali. He no longer is living in Budapest, but I remember so clearly, I, I met Ali for coffee, and we were sitting in this park. It was really, really beautiful fall day, and he asked me a question about something in the Bible. And I said, well, here, let me show you. And I pulled my Bible out of my backpack. And he just had this like, kind of like uh, jaw dropping, you know, wide eyes. And he said, is that a Bible? And I said, yeah. And he goes, can I touch it? I've never seen one before. I mean, he had a Bible on his phone, but that's a little bit different. He goes, I've just never seen one before in like a book. And the more we talked, the more we got to know each other. I mean, we met probably four or five times before he moved. Ali looked at me one day and he said, he said, you know, and we, we talked about a bunch of things about salvation and about security of salvation. And, and he looks at me, he says, James, he said, do you think now I have the right to call myself a believer? And I'm just like, wow, I've never heard that before. I've never heard somebody phrase it that way. That to me, for him, it was so fresh and so new. And I just was like, oh, I've walked away from that meeting, that time with him. And it's like, never let me lose that freshness that I call my, that I have the right to call myself a believer. As we think back to Acts 5, to the church, the early church, and what they did and how they did it, and as we think 2,000 years later, we're, we're here able to do what we're doing because of their faithfulness, that we can see people around the world come to faith in Christ and to, to say that that they have a right to call themselves a believer because they believe in Jesus. Father, we're grateful to you for your word. We're grateful to you that we do have this record in your word of the early church. We're grateful that we can learn about the church, we can learn about the struggles, we can learn about the joys, we can learn from them because we see, we read what they went through. We're thankful for, um, I was just thinking as that, as that verse was up on the screen, I will build my church. We're thankful for that promise that is a promise from you that I will build my church. We're thankful for all that you do and all that you have done and will do, not only for Austin Oaks Church, but for the church in Austin, for the church in the United States and the church around the world as we walk faithfully with you. In Christ's name, we're even able to come before you this morning. Amen.